1: Omicron optimism. Pfizer says a third vaccine dose neutralizes the variant. Angela's Auf Wiedersehen. Olaf Scholz sworn in as Germany's new chancellor. And party probe. Boris Johnson says claims his office flouted COVID lockdown rules will be investigated. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move once again, where we're following two breaking news stories this hour. The changing of the guard in Germany as new Chancellor Olaf Scholz takes power, plus highly significant and encouraging news on the fight against the new COVID variant. Just released data from Pfizer and its partner BioNTech say three doses of their vaccine "quote neutralizes the Omicron variant in lab tests. They caution, though, some Lack of clarity over how much protection two doses provide. Pfizer also disclosing that it continues to develop an Omicron-specific version of the vaccine. We will discuss all the details shortly. Important developments, but we also need further study and verification. And we need to understand the behavior of vaccines against this variant in the real world and not just in a lab. Yet, global investors are encouraged. U.S. futures set to advance following the best two-day rally on Wall Street this year. Europe... Cautious, of course, it remains deep in the grip of Delta, that variant surge. Also, let's remember that millions of people in the developing world are still desperately awaiting their first vaccine dose, never mind their third. We'll discuss all of this with the African Regional Director of the World Health Organization, plus the pandemic view Plus, the pandemic view from Brazil. Sao Paulo's governor, João Doria, will discuss the state's response to the variant. But first, I want to get over to Germany because former Chancellor
2: Angela Merkel is speaking. Government spokesman, I believe the uh, ministers here in at the chancellery, I would like to welcome you all. Also, on behalf of all those who held this position beforehand, uh, since I'm no longer a member of parliament, I was not able to uh, present my personal congratulations to Olaf Scholz, so I would like to do this now. Congratulations, dear Chancellor, dear Olaf Scholz. I know from experience that this is a moving moment to be elected to this office. You may uh, sense that it is an exciting and challenging task, a fulfilling task. And if one approaches it, it is also one of the most beautiful tasks there are to be responsible for this country. So I wish you all the best from the bottom of my heart and uh, that you should always be fortunate in your endeavors on behalf of this uh, country. We are uh, meeting here today in a small circle when uh, years ago I took over this task from Schröder, the whole stairs here had uh, staff standing on it who some of them are now listening to us. And uh, I can tell you that you will find a team here that is full of passion, uh, full of commitment in their work uh, every day and night if necessary, who are always ready, motivated, full of good ideas, and that holds true for everyone from the interior uh, and all resort heads uh, from the kitchen staff through to the post room and in the many, many tasks that have to work uh, like gears interacting with each other here anyone applying here to to work here stuff uh, uh, and to working here know what politics means that when you enter here in the morning you don't know what the day will bring and uh, you may always be prepared to have to uh, pay attention to very new unexpected challenges i know that you are highly motivated in uh, taking on your work here today and so uh, please take possession of this house and um, use this house in your work for the best of our country that is my wish and for that i wish you all the very best Liebe Frau Merkel, liebe Frau Bundeskanzlerin, Dear Mrs. Merkel, dear Dear Chancellor, I would like to thank you very much for your work over the past 16 years. Uh, I think one can say very uh, precisely that this was a great time during which you were Chancellor of this country, and you got many things done. Many challenges had to be overcome, but uh, uh, great crises uh, uh, came, uh, and some of those we worked together uh, in various capacities, me also heading the cabinet. Uh, where you, I remember 2009, the great challenges with the migration 2015. And now, of course, the great economic social challenge uh, linked with the corona pandemic, this has forged us together and between us there has always been a close cooperation based on trust and I think this is good because it shows that we are a strong democracy that can perform with a great consensus between the Democrats who are responsible for it and this will be our strength, continue to be our strength. But you have shaped this country and this government and this house. House. I can. And so I think one can say, I can say that it is a special moment. It is something special. And I'm happy to um, be inspired by the North German mentality uh, that uh, has uh, been pervasive in this house. Not so much will change there. I think we can uh, draw back uh, on the great work that has been done by many here, the staff of this house. And uh, this has always been very clear to me in terms of the responsibility that I've had and that is why I look forward to the cooperation. I would like to thank you, not only you, but also all those responsible who have uh, been here in position, who are gathered here. So there has been so much cooperation there over the past years and uh, to join and to build on that that is going to be uh, an honor for me, a privilege. I think it is something very special to be chancellor of this republic. It is a great challenge and I'm very grateful that uh, I now uh, been given this remit by the citizens of this country and by the parliament to do this. And the fact that uh, we have uh, had so much experience together, this will help me in my task. Thank you very much. And uh, to the staff who uh, are not here to do, but but who are listening uh, online streams in the various offices, thank you very much for the work you have done, for the work that you will done. I I will build on it. I will rely on it. And uh, the transition which we have got here now happens with a great... Great crisis that is not concluded and um, it means that we will all have to work together jointly and I think we will do that. We can fight the corona pandemic in terms of many people getting vaccinated and getting the boosters in terms of us being cautious that is part of it and that it is why it is right that this is a somewhat limited meeting here in terms of the people who are present physically the fact that we are wearing masks uh, when we We're sitting down, and that is a a precondition for this uh, being success. I'm grateful for what we've done so far. I look forward to the new task and uh, to working with all those here. And um, I will do everything that this will be another good start for our country.
1: New German Chancellor Olaf Scholz there taking the baton from former German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Rival parties, but an incredibly graceful handover, I think, there, as you observed. Fred Pleitken joins us now, Fred, and as both of them said, um, huge challenges, whether it's the economy, whether it's continuing to fight the yeah. pandemic, whether it's the geopolitical challenges. This Chancellor has huge shoes to fill where Angela Merkel leaves off, I think.
3: Mm.
4: Yeah, a gigantic, uh, gigantic shoes to fill, certainly. But I think one of the things that we heard there in the speeches uh, of both outgoing Chancellor Angela Merkel and the incoming Chancellor uh, Olaf Scholz was that uh, what they build on is continuity. And of course, one of the things that we have to keep in mind, uh, Julia, is that Olaf Scholz for the past years has been the vice chancellor uh, of Germany And and being the finance minister was also one of the most powerful people when it came to steering the economic fate of this country and, of course, also in the fight against the coronavirus pandemic. And I think it's something that both of them now pointed out. It is that continuity that Olaf Scholz uh, hopes to build on. As Angela Merkel said, he is taking control of that house, taking control of the chancellery. And you're uh, absolutely right to say that the biggest challenge is definitely fighting the coronavirus pandemic. That is something where Angela Merkel and Olaf Scholz in the past couple of days have already worked together they've held large scale meetings they've decided on new measures to try and combat the coronavirus pandemic uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, there's going to be some continuity in moving that forward but i also think that one of the biggest challenges that germany has right now is modernizing the economy and i think that uh, olaf scholz is aware of that his coalition partners are uh, aware of this making this a digital economy making it a more modern economy certainly is a big challenge and I think what we're going to see from this new government, and it's very important, you are going to see Germany move even more than it has so before uh, into a big transatlantic partnership with the United States. Olaf Scholz is no secret, is a big admirer uh, of President uh, Joe Biden. He has said in the past that he is uh, very grateful for Joe Biden bringing back, as he puts it, multilateralism uh, into the US's foreign policy. That's something that Olaf Scholz once again said just yesterday. And he's also a big fan and and a big supporter of uh, President Joe Biden's plan for global minimum tax. That's also one of the big things that Olaf Scholz has been fighting for uh, for the past. Couple of years. So you can see that there is uh, going to be very close relations with the United States, with this new government, but in general also a lot of continuity uh, in German politics, even as you have a chancellor from the rival party uh, of the one that Angela Merkel was in. Julia?
1: Yes, and first day as chancellor is a half day, which is quite nice, but there is clearly no time to lose mm. on the job. Fred Plyke, no. great to have you with us. Thank you for that. OK, let's bring in our second top story today. Omnicron Optimism just released data from Pfizer and its partner BioNTech say three doses of their vaccine, quote, neutralizes the Omnicron variant lab in lab tests. Let's be clear. Elizabeth Cohen joins me now. Elizabeth, I know you're going to have loads of caveats for me, but this does tie to some of the data that we got from the South African study, small as it was yesterday. How optimistic should we be and can you give us more details?
5: Julia, what you just said is so important that this data from Pfizer really does jive well with the, with the data that came out of the uh, South Africa research lab yesterday. And that's always good. That's always good to see when you have two different labs finding the same thing, so or finding something similar. So let's take a look sort of combined at what these two labs found. What they found is that two doses of the Pfizer vaccine may not provide sufficient protection against infection with Omicron. Now that's important because you always want to avoid infection, but being infected is not necessarily such a big deal. Two doses may not keep you from getting infected, but it may not be such a big deal to get infected. And also, here's the important part, two doses may still give significant protection against severe disease. Two doses of Pfizer may still protect you against ending up in the hospital or ending up dead. And a third dose, or what some people call a booster dose, may give more robust protection. So the bottom line here is that in a way, I mean, this is really pretty good news. It's very preliminary. It's only in, in labs, but it, it is still good news to hear that two doses does seem to give significant protection against severe disease and that a third Dose seems to do even better. I think when we saw this mutation, uh, you know, sort of at the end of November, everyone said, Oh my gosh, there's 30 different mutations in this variant. Will the vaccine even be vaguely useful? Yes, it is. The vaccine is still useful. Did this mutation, uh, this variant, this Omicron variant, did it escape the vaccine to some extent? Yes, it did. Did we want to see that? No. But the good news here is that the vaccine still does work to a great extent. Now, what the doctors are finding in South Africa is that people who are getting Omicron, if they're vaccinated, don't get very sick. That also sort of makes sense of this data. So let's take a listen to Dr. Angelie Koutsie. She is the chair of the South African Medical Association.
3: I need to stress for now, it's still protect against severe disease. Yeah. Um, as the as the disease patterns that we are seeing are mild on these people that's been vaccinated.
5: So again, Julia, what we're seeing is that the data and what Dr. Coutier just saying, it's all sort of agreeing, which is that this vaccine does seem to provide protection against severe disease. You might get infected, but it seems like it's giving protection against severe disease. Of course, many more studies still need to be done. Julia?
1: Yes. And for those that say this is a vaccine company saying, oh, our vaccine still works and you need to get a third dose in order to boost the efficacy, as you pointed out and we've pointed out, there are others now that are saying, look, this is a similar pattern to, to other data sets more work required however elizabeth cohen thank you so much for that our senior medical correspondent there okay still to come here on first move vital vaccines as Pfizer says, three doses are effective against the omicron variant we speak to the who's representative for africa to get her take and brazil has vaccinated its way out of one of the world's worst covid outbreaks the governor of sao paulo explains how stay with us that's next Welcome back to First Move. As we've heard, my apologies, initial studies from the makers of Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine show three doses of their drug can neutralize the Omicron coronavirus variant. The company say two doses may still provide protection against severe disease. Pfizer says two shots and a booster remain the best course of action to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And if it's needed, a vaccine specifically for Omicron could be ready by March. The company's chief scientific officer spoke to CNN a short while ago.
6: Two doses is on the weekend against this new variant. T-cells may help you to be protected against severe disease, hospitalization, but it's really time to get the third boost. And you should be very encouraged by this morning's news.
1: Africa, of course, remains the least vaccinated continent. While deliveries are accelerating in many places, a shortage of funds and hesitancy stand in the way. Dr. Matsudiso Moeti is the regional director for Africa at the World Health Organization. Dr. Moeti, fantastic to have you on the show. I appreciate your time. I'm vaguely appalled, actually, to ask your opinion of what you think of the Pfizer announcement this morning when, what, 80% of the continent hasn't had access to one dose yet. But what do you make of, of what Pfizer-BioNTech is saying today?
3: Sorry, what what are they saying today?
1: Um... Oh, they've come out this morning and suggested that three doses of the uh, vaccination that they've provided neutralizes the Omicron variant in lab
3: tests? I think that would then need to be taken into perspective, looking at the whole picture. And I hope that that's what decision makers in countries, policy makers and programs will do. That's something that's coming out in a laboratory. At the same time, we have about 90% overall of people who need a vaccine in Africa, not yet vaccinated. And we have uh, increasing indication that actually this Omicron variant may be more transmissible, but it does not cause severe disease. At the same time, we still have the Delta variant still circulating and it's, it's ticked up cases, particularly in Europe very tremendously, causing severe illness still. And we need to put all of that into perspective and seek to have what we have been advocating for WHO for months now equity in access to vaccines so that we protect all people who really need vaccines, become severely ill, die, overwhelm health systems in countries uh, in an equitable way, vaccinated across the world. That is what I would say to this information. Yeah,
1: you raise such a good point. And I remember the targets for the World Health Organization for the continent by the end of 2021, and I believe now just five African nations have reached the target for countries there to to vaccinate at least 40% of their people by the end of this year. Um, Was the target just far too ambitious? Does it come down to hesitancy? Does it come down to logistics? Does it come down to money? What's the the biggest
3: sticking point in your mind and what more can be done? Yeah, first of all, I I think ambitious targets are a good thing. They spur us Mm -hmm. on to more effort across the world. We've seen that with HIV, AIDS in Africa, we've seen that with with other uh, public health problems of a severe nature. And indeed, the ambition for COVID-19 has spurred on the very rapid development of tools. So that's a good thing. But I do think that we need to be aware that as long as we have countries that have low vaccination rates we will continue to have even more dangerous, possibly uh, variants emerging. So we we do need to move countries along at the same time. We've had a number of uh, issues uh, challenge African countries. First and foremost, we need to be very clear. The primary problem was access to vaccine supplies, while higher income countries had uh, supplies in storage, not in use for very many more, in some cases, times than their populations. And then now that vaccines have started to be available, more and more available in African countries, in a very complex way. Let me say we have a com- we have a different combinations of vaccines. We sometimes have uncertainty until the very last minute about when vaccines are being delivered. And if you have to plan a campaign for a whole country, it's very very challenging to do that with a level of uncertainty that's obtained for African countries. We do indeed have challenges with some populations in Africa being vaccine sceptical for various reasons, including the anti-vaxxer movement, which is affecting acceptance all over the world. And then countries are really looking, working to ramp up their capacity to deliver vaccines as they arrive. And we are seeing progressively better readiness among African countries. Primarily it's been an issue of access to supplies, predictability of supplies, and we hope that the situation will improve soon.
1: Obviously, it was the South African health authorities that identified the Omicron variant first, and and we're very grateful to them for for raising the alarm on this. But to your point, when I believe seven and a half percent of people across the continent are fully vaccinated, as you said, over 90 percent aren't, um, how concerned are you as the head of the World Health Organization there that there is a risk of further variants, if not this one, emanating from the region? simply due to the lack of vaccinations?
3: Yes, this is a concern. And and I think we need to be clear that we're we're not very certain that this variant emanated from the region. We know it was initially detected in South Africa and in in a neighboring country, Botswana. And very importantly, it was communicated immediately by these two countries. So the more we have people unvaccinated, the more there are chances that... uh, the virus will continue to replicate, it will continue to to spread in populations. So vaccination of all populations is important for the good of all people in all countries as as we stop even more dangerous variants emerging.
1: Yeah, We all need to accept that wherever the variant originates or is identified, everyone feels the effect of it. you know, one of the other things that I find most concerning, and you tweeted about it very recently, is just that 27% of health workers in Africa are fully vaccinated. And these are the people on the front lines putting, putting their lives on the line. How much of this is down to choice versus necessity once again, because there just aren't the supplies available? Because this is another responsibility, surely not just of the continent, but of the rest of the world, to ensure these people first and foremost are vaccinated.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes, again, it, it has been a combination uh, of, of uh, first uncertainty uh, of of the vaccine supplies while healthcare workers were very much in virtually all countries among the first groups to be targeted for, for being vaccinated. We are seeing, as we're seeing in the general population, some health workers be hesitant, some health workers uh, buy into some of the stories about vaccines. And governments are working with our support, WHO and other partners, very hard to really convince these colleagues who are such heroes, who've done such heroic work for a year and more to support uh, their communities that they need to get vaccinated for the sake of their work, their patients, their families, and most importantly, their own health and lives.
1: Yeah, you also tweeted something else which resonated with me, and that was for all the focus that we're putting on COVID-19, there are other viruses out there and diseases that we need to not lose attention and continue to focus on, HIV, AIDS, sexually transmitted diseases as well. But for people watching, what do we need to understand, whether you're coming from the continent or you're watching from somewhere else in the world? Because we can't lose focus on other issues behind the scenes while we continue to fight against COVID-19?
3: Yes, that's a very important point. In fact, I was at the opening yesterday of the AIDS conference, of the Africa AIDS conference, and where we were very strongly reminded that although we've made good progress on HIV and AIDS, we're still getting some people first not getting access to their treatment because of all the barriers created by COVID-19 and, and also other issues. Uh, and we've, we've seen the same childhood vaccination. And let me say that this is a particular problem in African countries We have data showing that some services dropped by about 60% wow. at the beginning of the pandemic when there were very strict lockdowns. But we also know that this happened in many countries. I, I'm aware that cancer treatment Um, surgery for certain conditions in high-income countries also had to be postponed. So there's been a real need for us to look at how to balance both the need to address the COVID-19 pandemic, but also to make our health systems resilient to the next shock so that we can continue to provide vital life-saving services for the most important problems that people have, even as we respond to such a huge challenge as the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: Yeah, a global response required. Dr. Moiti, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. And hopefully we'll speak again soon. The Regional Director for Africa at the World Health Organization there. Thank you. Okay, we'll be back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets are open for business this Wednesday. The major averages little changed in early trade. Futures had rallied earlier amid encouraging news on data on the efficacy of COVID vaccines. Pfizer and its partner BioNTech saying that a third booster dose of their vaccine, quote, neutralizes the Omicron variant in lab tests. The S&P 500 still only around 1% away from fresh record highs. A nice turnaround in sentiment after last week's pullback on concerns about that new variant. In the meantime, the White House says President Biden warned his Russian counterpart to expect strict sanctions if Russia invades Ukraine. The two men held a two-hour video call amid tensions over Russia's military buildup on the Ukrainian border. And joining us now is Ian Bremmer, president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. And in his recent speech on the state of the world, he outlined what he sees as some of the most powerful global forces today, from China to technologies to Gen Z. Ian, great to have you on the show. Let's talk about Russia, Ukraine, and of course, that meeting, digital meeting between the two presidents. How successful do you think it was?
7: Um- It was better than it could have been. Uh, And I think a lot of that is because it was set up well. Uh, The United States coordinated with all their key allies in Europe, including the UK, uh, in advance. And that meant they were able to say pretty compellingly that you won't see the kind of non-response in 2021-22 to any further aggression over Ukraine that you did back in 2014 when Crimea was annexed and the little green men popped over the border to take bits of the southeast. Um, That's very different from the unilateralism that the Biden administration was so roundly criticized for uh, during the Afghanistan withdrawal. I think they learned something there. And meanwhile, Putin is by himself. I, I think that's useful. And I think the fact that they're going to continue to engage in diplomacy with the United States acting as a team with its allies, none of whom are happy to see uh, increased Russian aggression on aggression on Ukraine. I think that's all. Uh, to the good. So if I were uh, re- reacting to all of this today, for the near term, at least, I think we've calmed tensions a bit.
1: It's a cliche, but we often talk about red lines, where uh, US presidents in particular are concerned and a lack of clarity over where the red lines are. At this point, are we saying that both sides know, at least as far as the US and its allies perspective are, what the red lines are and what the detailed consequences of crossing those are? And uh, in your case, and you've long said it, we won't see all out war here but there's plenty of things that Russia could do to destabilize the region and continuing to add pressure as far as troops are concerned can we rule all that out as Julia, a consequence I think that's of these exactly meetings exactly
7: the right question yeah. uh i mean i think there the, there are very clear red lines that if additional territory is taken that the sanctions that the russians will face have been laid out clearly and will deeply damage the russian economy i think both sides are very clear on that but the russians are highly unlikely to make it that easy on the United States and its allies. And if we were to see, uh, for example, um, significant Russian cyber attacks against Ukraine um, or incursion by Russian irregulars that the Russians could plausibly or implausibly deny were part of Uh, their formal defense forces. Uh, Then there, I think there's a bigger question about whether the Americans could keep the Europeans together and could respond uh, effectively. So, uh, you know, I don't think we're out of the woods here. And I think the Russians are absolutely going to make this challenging because they're not happy that the Ukrainians have been integrating more closely into NATO over time. They want to put an end to that.
1: And you said that Russia is fearful that Ukraine becomes a member of NATO. I mean, the United States, in particular, has been non-committal on that fact. Uh, in any case, do we just hold then at this point? Like, what tips the balance?
7: I think that we can't give the Russians public assurance that Ukraine right. no longer has the sovereign ability to decide what it wants to join. I mean, we're not prepared to throw foreign policy out the bus. Um, for, for Putin. But in reality, of course, some of that has long already existed. Uh, in other words, um, you've got the United States and allies refusing to allow Ukraine to join. And it's been a long time now, uh, precisely because nobody's prepared to offer direct military assurances that we would defend Ukraine if they were attacked the first time in 2014 or again going forward. So, you know, I think it's kind of like Taiwan. Where there is a level of necessary ambiguity from both sides, because the status quo is okay-ish. It doesn't satisfy anyone, but we're not willing to tip too far in either direction.
1: You know, this all ties to in part what you were discussing this week, and you released your state of the world, and I do want to talk about this because you explore some of the big domestic challenges that both the United States and China face and say, actually, that creates a, a vacuum, a gap for other nations to step up and play a role. It also creates a, a vacuum and space for some of the big tech giants to play a huge role. And we've already seen it. You, remember, you mentioned cyber attacks, uh, the Solar Winds response, Microsoft playing a huge part. And that is one example. Tech companies de-platforming US presidents, the result of what we saw on, on Janu- January the 6th this year. You call it a technopolar moment. Just describe what the technopolar moment is.
7: Uh, It means that, you know, for all of my life when we're talking about tensions on the global stage, we're talking primarily uh, about governments and increasingly that's not true. Increasingly if you talk about national security, if you talk about the state of the global economy um, and if you talk uh, about about domestic politics, increasingly we have to talk about a small number of technology companies based in the United States and China in addition to governments and on the one hand that actually reduces the likelihood of a US versus China Cold War because the incredible power these countries have comes in significant and growing part from these companies that aren't completely aligned at all with the national security interests of Beijing and Washington. On the other hand, it undermines the social contract. It reduces the effective sovereignty of governments that are supposed to be taking care of their citizens because anything that happens in the digital space, in the virtual world, Tech companies are sovereign, not governments. And the digital world is becoming more important to all of us for the way we live our lives and for the outcomes of how geopolitics play out.
1: I mean, you define three different business models that these tech companies uh, will evolve to and they will choose to some degree based on their relationship that they're going to have with governments going forward. You call them globalists, national champions and tech utopians. And we can sort of define and you do in the piece where people are headed already. The Amazons, the Microsofts becoming more like national champions. Apple out there is a globalist. What determines which model, which business model for each of these tech giants ends up the winner in your mind? Well,
7: Yeah, I I think one of the big questions is to what extent we actually see a true technology decoupling between the United States and China. Remember, we set up the World Wide Web. It was the idea that there was going to be one global interconnectedness. Globalization was making people and capital and data move faster and faster across borders. Is that now unwinding? It isn't in terms of the global economy, in terms of global commodities, in terms of tourism, uh, even though the pandemic has, you know, delivered a, sh- a temporary shock. But when it comes to data and the Internet, crypto, all the rest, increasingly there are signs that the United States and China are creating a splinternet. And that could even become, instead of a metaverse, it could become a splinterverse. Now, if that happens national champions will become more important. And then you would see something akin to a technology cold war. And those, those companies that are aligned with China or aligned with the United States will be the most successful. And other countries around the world will have to choose one or the other. That's not where we are today. Today, if you're not in the United States or you're not in China, you feel like you can actually build your economy working with everybody. You don't have to make that kind of a choice. And I think that going forward, the question of how that plays out is going to be absolutely critical, both for which tech companies are the most successful and powerful and also what kind of a world we live in.
1: Yeah, I mean, gosh, I could keep you talking on this for a, another hour at the very least. But one of the other things you say, and we'll come back and talk about this, and you have to come back and talk to me about it again, is that you, you compare this to climate change and that we need to be having an even greater response than we're seeing to climate change today because the technology shift is happening far quicker than, than climate change. We will reconvene because I do want to quickly get your, your views on Omicron and obviously the news from Pfizer this morning, hopeful signs at least on, on their vaccine.
7: Hopeful signs, Uh, of course, what we don't know is how long um, your antibodies from a booster shot will last. I'm not Mm -hmm. surprised at all that a booster shot does a hell of a lot better in protecting us. But what happens if it's six months out and everybody has to get boosted again? Also, keep in mind when 8% of Africa has even been fully vaccinated with their first course, Uh, No one's gotten a booster yet. And so, of course, the world is still very vulnerable to Omicron. The big news out there is going to be about severity of disease. And early indications show that it might be milder than Delta. If that holds, it's fantastically positive news. If it doesn't, uh, the next six months, even, even maybe 12, are going to be far more damaging, especially for the poorer countries in the world that just have don't have the ability to roll out and protect their populations.
1: Yeah, and we're failing them. We literally just had this conversation, um, as always, attuned. Ian, great to chat to you. Ian Bremmer, you president you- of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. Great to chat to you. Thank you. Okay, coming up here on First Move, Brazil faces multiple challenges as it is emerging from the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. How the governor, though, of Sao Paulo is tackling it. Next. Welcome back to First Move. Brazil wants a global epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic, staging a turnaround with 65% now of the population fully vaccinated. The daily number of deaths from COVID-19 is now down to around 200 compared to almost 3,000 back in April. But keeping the Brazilians safe is an ongoing challenge and far from over with the country's largest state of Sao Paulo announcing a decision to reduce the wait time between vaccination and booster shots from five months to four months and to reassess the lifting of mask mandates this week. Brazil has also announced a five-day quarantine for unvaccinated travelers. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, is the governor of Sao Paulo, João Doria. Governor Doria, fantastic to have you on the show once again. Um, let's start with the decision to force unvaccinated travelers to quarantine for five days. You see the bulk of those travelers, your state, coming into the, the country of Brazil. Does that go far enough in your mind, or should the federal government go further?
6: Uh, Julia, thanks for having me. Uh, We are asking right now the federal government to urgently require COVID pass for international travelers that arrive in Brazil. That's the the right way. And Sao Paulo receives two thirds of the foreigners that come by flights to our country. The major airport in Brazil is located in Sao Paulo. So it's mandatory to demand here the same vaccine certificate that Brazilians most show when traveling to Europe, or to the USA. And Sao Paulo, Julia, has the most successful vaccination program in Brazil. It would be a shame to put the health of dozens of millions at risk without any justifiable reason. And this is the main reason why Sao Paulo Scientific Committee recommended to us uh, this measure. We have sent an official requirement to the Health Ministry of Brazil that must assure Prudence, adopting the COVID pass at our borders and international terminals.
1: So you're saying you don't want unvaccinated visitors coming into Brazil at this moment. President Bolsonaro ruled this out already this week. How confident are you that he will decide to change his mind for the safety of the Brazilian public?
6: Well, uh, Mr. Bolsonaro is a very difficult person. Uh, He's a denialist, as you know, and uh, we here, we, our priority is the health and the life of the people. And Brazilian people, Julia, are tired of political issues. We need peace and hope to rebuild this country.
1: What about the mask mandates, Governor? Are you thinking of maintaining, having to wear masks outdoors? I know you're going to make a decision again this week. Can you give us any sense?
6: Julia, uh, masks uh, are obligatory here in Sao Paulo. Uh, All the numbers demonstrate Mm -hmm. that the pandemic is reaching back in Sao Paulo, in the city and in the state of Sao Paulo. However, uh, with coming end of the year, parties and celebrations and the uncertainties about the impact of the Omicron variant, we will choose to be careful. Our greatest commitment is to the health and the life of the population. So another important measure to prevent the spread of the new variant are educational campaigns, campaigns that encourage the use of alcohol gel and keeping hands clean and masks. In accordance with the recommendation of the scientific committee, we decided to maintain the request to use masks in inside spaces and in open spaces also.
1: You're fresh off the back of winning the PSDB party primaries to be their presidential candidate. Of course, you've got elections coming up next year um, and you're offering a third way. And and part of of the challenge of ruling, whether it's a state or the country, is balancing the health risks with trying to keep the economy going and and enable the economy to grow. And you have seen a a significant recovery in Brazil, but now the economy is stagnating. What's your plan for the third way? And, And how do you differentiate yourself from what President Bolsonaro is going to offer into next year. And of course, what another challenger, and and we all know him well, uh, former President Lula is going to offer too.
6: Uh, Julia, thanks for the question. Uh, It's very important at this time to bring hope to the population and show that Brazil has solution. Let's take care of the poorest and rebuild our economy here in Sao Paulo. This is already happening. Sao Paulo is the most powerful Uh, state uh, in Brazil. With advancement of the vaccination, São Paulo has greater economic growth than national and also has break records for public investments and job creation. And this is essential for us. This year's projection for São Paulo growth is 7.5%, much greater than the estimates for Brazil, which is 5.3% and to boost the economy we launched the largest program of works in the history of the state of Sao Paulo with 8000 infrastructure works that will create 200000 jobs in the state of Sao Paulo and Julia what we need in Brazil now are jobs and we also in Sao Paulo reduced the size of the state and undertaking 12 concessions and private public partnerships Which will generate over 10 billion US dollars to invest in priority areas such as health, education, and safety. And we also announced a tax reduction for 11 sectors, including medicines, uh, restaurants, bars, cafes, food, juices, and agribusiness industry.
1: You know, it's interesting, and you've said it a number of times in this conversation, you know, people are tired. I think the people that I speak to there, they're tired of the big promises and the lack of follow through, their lack of uh, tackling violence there as well. And we've seen that pop up all around the world, the corruption. Polls suggest, at least at this stage, and I know you've got some time, you've got one heck of a challenge on your hands to try and boost your poll readings, to boost your popularity around the country. It's very different running a state from, from running the entire country. What can you say to the people today that you represent something different and they're not just going to get the same old when they vote for someone new?
6: Uh, we have to keep away populism. I'm not a populist. Uh, right. I am working. I'm it's working tough hard to be elected when you're not a populist
1: power. today. It's tough to get elected when you're not a populist today.
6: Well, telling the truth, Julia, and uh, doing our job as we are doing now and creating uh, uh, jobs and uh, running well uh, the economy of the state of of Sao Paulo. We create the biggest and most comprehensive social program, as I told you. And uh, five million people at this moment, uh, uh, we are serving these people, uh, serving citizens and their families here in Sao Paulo. Well, if we do that in Sao Paulo, the big state of Brazil, we can do that to Brazilians, all Brazil around.
1: Yeah. Governor, continue to come and talk to us, please. We're tracking your progress. The governor of Sao Paulo, there, sir. tough decisions. They have to be made. Thank you. Still to come. A trip to outer space may seem like a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but we'll introduce you to one man who says his amazing journey won't be his last. Welcome back to the And Finally on First Move, a capsule carrying a Japanese billionaire docked with the International Space Station around an hour ago. It's not known how much Yuzaku Mezawa, a fashion entrepreneur, paid for the trip, but some reports say it was north of $50 million. Wowzers. He's the first tourist to visit the International Space Station in more than a decade. And Meizawa says it won't be his last trip. He's also funding a private SpaceX mission to fly around the moon in 2023. Pretty cool if you can afford it. I'd love to go next time, please, sir. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World is up next and I'll see you tomorrow.
0: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level.